This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Right as I was about to tell everyone to turn to the book of whatever, I look out the front door and 10 or 15 guys jump up on the steps and just start beating him down right on the front steps of the church. Mother's Day morning, people in hats, suits, dresses, skirts, ties, right? I'm looking, I'm pointing. Everybody turns around, looks at the back of the church. All the men in the church jump up and run to the back, and a full-out melee starts on the front steps between the church and the guys on the block. I mean, WWE beating each other down. Morgan, Morgan Lee. What's R- your whole name? Richard Clark. What's my full name? Your full name. So on, on Quick to Listen, you always say, uh, you you host Quick to Listen along with Caitlin Beatty, who was on my last podcast. And every Quick to Listen, you refer to your Twitter handle and then you say that you'll explain that in person. Guys, later. this is the moment that this you is, may or may not have been waiting for. This is the moment. My full name is Morgan Emily Pomeakai Akana E. Ning Lee. So I'm going to try to repeat that back. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to try to repeat I would be that here back. supporting you, clapping you on. I'm not going to do it. So you are the co-host of Quick to Listen. What's your official title here at Christianity Today? I'm an assistant editor. Assistant editor. And so what's like the favorite thing you do? One you of my favorite choose. things to do is writing international stories. And my favorite thing about that is the level of depth that we go into these stories. We're not just necessarily trying to do like another terrorist attack in some random country. We're trying to actually t- parse out some of the tensions and inner conflicts that are going on and move the story forward for yeah. our readers by giving them a lot of context. And so I'm lucky enough to work with a boss named Jeremy Weber, who, I mean, boss in all sense he of the words, right? Like for real. Yeah. Who knows so much about all these different countries. And I feel like I'm a much more educated global citizen, as they say, because of my work. What area in Chicago do you live in? I live on the west side, <clears throat> best side. Cool. I'm in the west suburbs. Those are the best suburbs. Ah, all right. <laughs> we see you north suburbs and south suburbs. Okay. The person that I'm interviewing this podcast, I'm actually really excited about. His name is Jonathan Brooks. Do you know him? Jonathan and I met in person a couple weeks ago. Awesome. So he lives in Inglewood. Yes. He's a pastor in Inglewood. Mm-hmm. He I think serves technically in- West Inglewood. West Inglewood? Uh, is that a different Jonathan? Thing? I don't know much about things. Yes. West in Chicago. Be- Again. West Englewood, best Englewood. Oh, okay. <laughs> we taped our first podcast with Jonathan, as you know. Yeah. So anyone they would like to can go back to the first episode of Quick to Listen and listen to Jonathan talk about protests mm-hmm. and the protests that he's personally participated into them and how Christians might be challenged to think about civil disobedience. Yeah. Yeah. We talked briefly about his activism role and uh, really moved on to the pastoring aspect. So that's, I think... That he actually does talk a lot in this uh, episode about like how he envisions ministry, his ideas that shape his ministry, that sort of thing. But we didn't talk a lot about activism, and so if people want to hear that, it's a good it's a good listen for sure. 
I really enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan. I think it may be, I don't want to play favorites, but I think it may be, I think this may, this may be my most enjoyable time in an interview. Like, um, first of all, I got to go to his workplace or one of his workplaces, which was uh, a school in that area mm-hmm. that, um, so I just got to like go into the office and ask for him and then walk through all these kids playing and stuff. And we kind of went into a closet somewhere and recorded. And I just got to see what that was like. Um, and then, uh, and then like we just talked about basically like he's a straight up tent making type pastor. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of stuff. He works full time that's not in a role that's not pastoring. And then he does what he, you know, he does what he has time to do as a pastor for his church. Um, He told some amazing stories about his own salvation experience, about his experience as a pastor when he wasn't sure he wanted to be a pastor, but he just kind of got roped into it. And then sort of like these crazy events that happened at his church that caused him to want to be more community-oriented and more embedded in community. What did you feel like you learned from Jonathan? Like you said earlier, you live in the west suburbs. Jonathan lives on the south side of Chicago. Yeah. What is there for you to take home and change about your own life? One thing we talked about was cultural Christianity and how to deal with it. So he talked about how there is a lot of cultural Christianity in his area, and I pointed out in the interview, it sounds a lot like what I grew up around mm-hmm. uh, in southern Alabama. And certainly uh, the way he talks about engaging culture, I think for a lot of people who listen to this podcast will be counterintuitive. In terms of people think of the church as this thing that's supposed to be standing up and against culture primarily, right? A little tug of war going on. Right. Yeah. So if you are if you have a problem with cultural Christianity in the South, we need churches that are set apart in that way. And I think that's true in a sense. But one thing that Jonathan talks about is the need for churches to come alongside their local culture and ask what they need and to be there for them. And so that was a really helpful conversation i thought um morgan thanks for doing this where can people find you on twitter y'all remember my name i'm not gonna repeat that. <laughs> just remember her name and type in the initials i am on twitter at m e p a y n l good you can also follow both richard and mine's podcast at ct podcasts that's on twitter on facebook we are facebook.com slash ct podcasts that's right and before we go i wanted to read rating or reviewing podcasts is really important it helps people to find out about the podcast and so if you like this podcast you want it to continue to exist which is contingent on people actually listening to it then you need to go and write and review our podcast also i will probably like read what you say on the air and then respond to it It's surprising something this in-depth and honest didn't already exist for church leaders. See, now I'm feeling embarrassed. Glad CT is giving us an ear to listen and learn wisdom from church leaders of all types. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jack Attack 8. Thanks, Jack Attack. Anyone else? We have Wade underscore B. The Callings premiere episode is fantastic. I can't wait to hear what they have in store next. Are you listening yet? What are you waiting for? Calma, just do it. Comma, just do it. Do it is one word. That's good. I like that. And then finally, from JW465, God's calling is such a huge deal, especially for those in roles of church leadership. Looking forward to CT's work in this area. With the headline, Richard Clark is awesome. Richard Clark is awesome. Richard Clark is awesome. All right. Well, and I'm going to lead into our podcast with this. Jonathan Brooks is awesome. Here he is.
So you, so you work here eight hours a day. I do. What are you going to do when you leave here? Well, so today, which is a rare day, is the middle school social studies fair, and my daughter goes here too. So I'm going to be here to see her present her social studies fair project. So okay. Oh, I'll, awesome. Yeah. So I'm going to stay. But typically, on a day like today, I would leave, uh, probably head to my church to make sure that there's nothing that needs to be taken care of there as far as, you know, um, business is concerned. But then I'd probably spend, uh, like on Thursdays, there's the Inglewood Community Cultural Council has meetings. The seven district police caps meetings happen. Find out what's going on with the resident association, like things of that nature. Right? I yeah. try to tap back into what's, what's been going on in the community all day because I've been yeah. at work. Um, but also, uh, making sure that, um, there's no one in the congregation who needs care. Nobody needs a hospital visit, those type of things, yeah. all that. So typical pastor stuff as well. Uh, after a full day of work. That's a lot. That's a lot. And what's interesting is like, uh, so you're like the, you're a self-described activist, right? I am. And a lot of people think, you just like activists go out and they protest and that's basically, but you're describing a lot of meetings that seem to be like inherent in that role. That's right. That's right. If you, if you're not understanding the pulse of your community, I'm not an activist who goes out on my agenda. I'm an activist who goes out on behalf of the agendas of the people in which I serve and live with. Huh. And so to be able to hear the voices of the people in my community, know what we as a community are deciding or thinking and then being a voice and an activist uh, actionary around exactly what we decided together was going to be our opinion. That's different. Yeah. Yeah. That's different. For man. sure. So um, if you're listening and you're not looking at your podcast screen, then you would not know that this is Jonathan Brooks I'm talking to. They call you, I think, so the first time I ever saw you, I don't think we actually met. I think I just ended up having to leave really quickly at the end, but I was at a workshop at the Legacy Conference here in Chicago. Yes. And you were doing a workshop on um, mass incarceration. That's right. But you introduced yourself by saying, everyone calls me Pastor Jay. That's it. But then when I walked in and, in uh, the office, I said, I'm here for Pastor Jay. And they, <laughs> looked, like, they looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> because you came to the school That's where right. I'm Mr. Brooks, right? That makes sense, yeah. But if you come to my community, uh, my church, or anywhere else, it'll be Pastor Jay and not Pastor. Uh-huh. Pastor. Pastor. That's yeah. right. P-A-S-T-A-H. <laughs> Jay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little scared to try that, personally. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so, yeah, you're uh, Pastor Jay. That's it. From uh, And you're the lead pastor of Canaan Community Church. You're also a teacher. Yes, sir. I'm also a teacher, do an artist, a musician as well. Oh, and, my gosh, um, this is a lot. Yep, and uh, and do quite a bit of traveling and speaking as well on okay. a national level uh, around Christian community development and community transformation. Okay, great. So, um and you're an activist. Okay, so that's a lot. So of all of those things, or maybe incorporating all of those things, I don't know, maybe this is going to kind of tie all those things together, but what, how would you define what what is your core, your sort of calling in life? Yeah, so um, transformation is the word I use. Okay. Okay, to kind of describe what I think God has uniquely gifted me to do. Uh, but it, it it just kind of plays itself out differently in different areas of my life. So on a community level, I really believe that getting people in, especially in more marginalized neighborhoods and places, whether those are communities in inner city or whether they're rural places where people kind of drive through but don't drive to, is to help them realize that God has uniquely put people in certain places for the investment and growth and transformation of that place. So in the neighborhood I grew up in, Inglewood, where I'm pastoring now, I always thought that growing up, getting a lot of money and moving away was going to be the best thing that could ever happen. That was success. 
And God kind of flipped it on his head for me when I went away to college and said, no, really, if everyone continues to leave these communities that have, you know, traditionally been uh, disinvested, then what's going to happen if you leave too? It just continues the cycle. And so one of my biggest messages, especially to young people in my community, to those who go on to college and those who society will call successful is, is who told you you couldn't come back and be a part of seeing this community change rather than escaping it, hoping never to come back. So um, that's a big one for me. I spend a lot of time working with young people. Our, our church gives college scholarships with the, the caveat that you are. we're hoping that you will come back and be a part of the community, a leader here. You can work wherever you want to work, but that you will build and set roots right here so that the kids in the neighborhood will see uh, someone from here was successful. Um, I think on the pastoral uh, level, it's all about the church actually being a transformational agent in the community. So in my neighborhood, once again, there's about 80 churches, you know, within a what two mile radius. I'm talking like tons of churches. What area of Chicago? So is this? I'm in the West Inglewood neighborhood, okay. which is South Side Chicago. Mm-hmm. 98% African American, right? Uh, you know, very uh, traditionally known for violence and and uh, and and, uh, and poverty and other bad things. But what I see is a community that has so much potential, so many churches, so many people who say they love God, and yeah. yet very little change in the behavior and the the attitude of the people. And so my thing is, how does the church become intimately involved in the lives of people to the point to where they trust it again and see the church as something that's there for them, not for its own benefit. And so uh, even right now at Canaan, no ministry is done. No ministry is created. We don't sit down and have strategic planning sessions about what we want to do. We listen to our community in our neighborhood, what they say needs to be done and what assets they have already to get it done. And we join in partnership with our community. So we think there's three types of churches. There are churches that are in the community, churches that are for the community, and then churches that are with the community. So we see churches in the community all the time. You know, they, they're there. They have church Sunday service. There may be a Wednesday something, but the rest of the week, they're going to put the locks and chains on the doors and going about their business till they come back the following week. Then there's churches that are for the community that, you know, Oh, yeah, we want our community to do better. So we're going to have after school programs. We're going to have a food pantry. We're going to we're going to, you know, do clothes giveaways. But um, the food pantry is from nine o'clock to eleven o'clock on Saturday. And um, that's the only time we can be there. So if you want some food, when we open our doors, you get a chance to get some. So we set the agenda. We hold all the authority. We hold all the power. But we're for you. What we want to be is a church that's with our community that says, no, no, we don't want to hold all the power. We don't want to hold all the authority. We want to be an asset and a partner and see transformation happen from the very people who have the issues or who have concerns. And so the more you do that, what what tends to happen is, is that your church actually leans away from words like outreach or, or words like compassion and starts dealing with words more like partnership and empowerment. And now your neighborhood sees your church as, oh, yeah, that's our church. I literally took the church sign off the front of our church. It doesn't say Canaan Community Church (laughs) in the front anymore Mm -hmm. because I'd rather have my community call it what they see it. What do they call it? Oh, the church on the corner. Oh, you mean Pastor Jay's church? Uh Oh, you mean, oh, you mean the church that does the, uh, the, the food co-op? Yeah, I go to, uh, yeah, I love that church. Oh, you mean the church that does the juvenile detention stuff? Yeah, I love that church. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who are we really? I ask people all the time, if you had no church sign, what would they <laughs> what call, would they your call you? Yeah, yeah. 
the church that sometimes does close closet, I guess, maybe <laughs> at a time which I'm not really available. The church that makes me stand outside in below zero weather right. to get my food. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a nice try, at least. Um, okay, so... Uh, it's interesting because it seems like you're you're describing a kind of cultural Christianity that exists in that area right now, which is interesting to me as a person who comes from uh, southern Alabama mm. and is very familiar with cultural Christianity of a different kind, yes, I guess. I'm sure. Uh, in fact, we're seeing the fruits of some of that cultural Christianity right now with, with Trump be- being really popular and stuff, at least at the time of this recording. Hopefully not at the time <laughs> that this is released. We'll see. Um I've tried to avoid talking about Trump in these podcasts because I know they're supposed to have a long tail, but who knows? He'll be a he'll be in history. Okay. It'll anyway, be a tail on it no matter what. Do you think that's a similar idea? Like the 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 people in the South who claim Jesus, but um, they say Jesus uh, is my co-pilot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jesus take the wheel, <laughs> etc. And then the people here. Um, do you think that there's a similar thing going on? I do. So what's the answer to that? You're, you're saying the answer to that is community involvement of the sort that... That empowers the community yeah. to actually be the authority. Some people would say like that makes that makes church like the community or, you know, if you draw that out, like mm-hmm. the world, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. How do you keep that from happening? So here's what um, we've found to be true by practicing it is that it challenges the church to actually be the church, right? It doesn't make the church like the community. It makes the church have to know what it believes, stand for what it believes, but respect the differences and ideas of all those that are in community, which to me is far more Christianity than either be like us or get out. Right. No. Christianity happens in culture. Right. It doesn't happen uh, uh, outside of culture. It doesn't only happen against culture. Christianity was never pit up like, oh, the Christians over here and the culture over there. No, you see the scripture all the time. I remember um, one of my favorite uh, passages is when Paul is, is in Rome and he's looking at all the gods they got in the pantheon. He's <laughs> like, oh, my goodness, you guys are really religious. <laughs> Right. And he yeah. looks up and he says, but I see you have this altar to the unknown God. Pretty interesting. Can I, can I talk to you a little bit about the, the unknown God? And they're like, sure. Cause what does he do? He starts off by talking about what they're already good at. Like you guys are really religious. You really, like you got this religion thing and you take it seriously. Right. So much so that you know, you may not know everything. And so he gets to stand up as a Christian, but he doesn't dismiss them as people who think differently than him. I think the church has to learn how to live with their community and understand that people aren't going to always agree with you. Yes, you will have disagreements about different views and different areas and different things that the church may, your church may stand for that people in the community may not, but it doesn't mean that their opinions are not valid and that you shouldn't be listening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What we learn to do is how to love in community. When we separate ourselves, we don't have to love, right? We just tolerate. Right, right, yeah. (laughs) There's a lot in the South. I can say this, I guess, because I'm from the South. There's like a kind of hypocrisy that one can settle into. Hypocrisy is maybe a stronger word than I mean, but you put on a face. You put on a certain face, either for church or for what for me was high school or whatever. Like you, you act in a certain way that you wouldn't in both places. Do you do you do you see that problem here? Or is it less of an issue? Um, I think it has been an issue, but this millennial generation is giving us the proverbial middle finger when right. it comes to that. Yeah, they're pretty much saying we're tired of playing those games. Yeah. We don't even want to deal with that. 
You're not speaking our language. You're not listening to any of the stuff that we're dealing with. So screw you. We'll do it our own way. That's pretty much what's happening <laughs> right. with the church at this point. Yeah. Um, you look at um, movements that are happening now, like whereas um, even civil rights movements used to be centered in the church. And you got movements like Black Lives Matter, you know, that are basically just saying, church, pfft, we don't want to hear from you. Right. Because the church has so long been about its own interests and its own survival that we have just alienated ourselves. We have literally gone Christ versus culture, right? Either come along with this Christian culture we've created or your culture that you're creating over there is bad versus saying that Christ is Lord of all culture. So it's, yeah, a lot of tillich in my mind as I think about this stuff, man. It's just What do you mean a lot of tillich? For the listener. Yeah. So a lot of Paul Tillich's views are all these, you know, is it Christ versus culture or Christ against culture or Christ with culture, right? And the idea for me is, is that it's really a little all of those, right? There are times when as Christians, we're going to have to go against the culture because it's, that's antithetical to, to, to Christ's view. But there are many other times we're going to have to say, you know what? The culture is actually teaching us something right now. Yeah, yeah. And we need to be listening and walking and going with them. And then there's other times where we're going to be able to teach the culture something like, oh man, but we're so, if we're more concerned about sustaining ourselves, you know, making sure we get a lot of people or these church growth books and all these things about like having a big number of people come to our church versus really seeing impact when it's time for us to speak to the church and be the conscience of the world and conscience of the society that won't have anything to do with us because where have you been all these years i want you to tell me if you can an an example of like one of these awkward moments where you do have to go against culture yep yep and how you handled that yep yep so um perfect example i was a part of a protest after the shooting of laquan mcdonald Okay. There were actually two protests. The church planned their own protest, which was the one that happened on Michigan Ave and blocked all the stores on Black Friday. That was a church-led protest. That was mostly a church-led protest. I'm sure there were people out there that weren't, but majority of the people out there were Christians. Reality. But I came to the protest that happened a few days earlier where they actually tore down like the Christmas tree in the middle of like downtown Chicago, right? I just saw that people were protesting. I was like, yes, this is a horrible thing, but there needs to be someone out there who's going to keep this thing peaceful. Right. And so that's why I went. I went because I agreed with you, but I knew that you needed a conscience as well. And so I could see the anger and the frustration in people's faces that we marched up to the first district police station and the people got all in the police's face and screaming and yelling them and cursing at them. And I would come across that, take that badge off. I would blah, 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 blah. And I'm literally standing in between the police officers and the people going, this is not what we need to do. We just need to let them know how we feel. Right. I understand your frustration. I get the anger. The anger is justified. But if we cross a line, they will discredit the protest because of violence. And so what we don't want is the protest. So I'm literally one of maybe three people out there who's going against everyone who's like, let's tear this place up. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very awkward because people are asking, well, why are you here? Yeah. Then why are you here? Yeah, it's funny because both sides, both sides, right? The people who aren't at that protest and who are judging it silently from their, t- not so silently from their TV and on the internet. And then the people who are in the protest are both like, why are you there? Yeah, exactly. You exactly. are making it worse one way or the other. <laughs> and you're just trying to be a presence, yeah. right? You know what Christ's presence would be there. He would be totally for the marginalized, but how do we do it in a way that honors God? And that's what I was trying to do. And it was such a rock in a hard place, right? It was, I'm turning around telling the police officers, uh, you know, I'm frustrated by what you did. And this was, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but at the same time, please forgive us for like, 
<laughs> like going over the line and what, you know, we, we appreciate what you do every day. Yeah. Were they hearing that from you? In some ways, some like there were many who totally disregarded me. There were some who like were not supposed to engage at all, but did engage a little bit, you know. So it, but that to me, that's the place of the church is to be in that awkward space of when am I against? When am I with? When am I learning from? When am I? We have to discern that. The greatest thing that God did for us was say, I know you got a lot to do and a lot to discern. So I'm going to give you this, some help. Comforter called the Holy Spirit. And you know, also helps you discern things and, you know, hear the word of God and understand it better, you know. And I really believe that the church, you know, we, especially when it comes to trying to understand culture and how to embrace it and whether to engage it, you know, we, we, we turn off our Holy Spirit ears a lot and just go with what we feel is comfortable. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith Hope and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Have you been a Christian all your life? I've been going to church my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when did you become a Christian? I became a Christian down there in that Bible bet you were talking about earlier in Alabama. Awesome. I went to uh, Tuskegee University, uh, Stokely Black College in Alabama. And, um, you know, when you go down to Alabama, eventually a couple of Bibles will hit you upside the head until you submit and <laughs> come to Christ. Yeah. But um, uh, I actually, um, it's a pretty interesting story. So I was a I would almost call myself a worshiper of hip hop before huh. I became a Christian. Um, hip hop was like my life. I was a graffiti writer and break dancer and ra- rapper and all that good stuff. And I eat, used to eat, breathe and sleep hip hop all day long. Right. And, um, I can remember I went to an event on my college campus and, uh, they actually brought like a Christian rapper in or whatever. This was in 1998 or seven. So Christian rap was not what it is now. I'm not talking Lecrae when I say this, right? Right. Like, right. like this is really corny. Like, hey, Jesus, here's your friend. And you know. do you remember who it was? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to put his name out there. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's a good point. You just said he was corny. Why would I? Why would I ask you to do that? But I will say that that corny rap somehow caught my attention and made me go, "You can like God's cool with that." And uh made me continue to kind of connect with the people who were running it and all that. And uh, that weekend was when I really, for the first time, kind of heard the gospel clearly and me and my own state and my need for Christ and my, you know, inability to save myself. And it was like, wow, like I've been in church my whole life and I hadn't heard any of this probably because I wasn't listening. And um, but I had a quandary because I said, oh, my God, God doesn't like hip hop. I know like the corny rap dudes up there, but. Not real hip hop, not like graffiti, like not, I mean, corny rap, but not like hip hop. <laughs> so I went back to my dorm room yeah. and I was like crying and bawling and I had all these CDs and posters on my walls and all these things and I'm tearing them off my wall and I'm going, God, this is not fair. This is not fair. How can you call me to love you? How can you say that I'm supposed to love you and worship you and you don't love anything who I, this is who I am. And I remember laying on my bed and I said, all right, God, I'll tell you what. 
I know that you're greater than hip hop and I will give it up if that's what it takes to like be your follower. But you're going to have to replace this with something like you're going to have to fill this void. And I and I like took all my CDs and I pushed them in the hallway of my dorm room and all those posters and put them out and just closed the door because that was the only way I was going to ever get rid of it because I would not. I'm sure within two minutes, those are all gone like yeah. in a dorm. But uh, I laid on my bed and I just cried and my phone rang. And it was a friend of mine who had become a Christian maybe a couple of months earlier at a retreat. And uh he said, hey, man, I heard you just gave your life to Christ. And I'm like, yeah. And I was not happy about it, right? I'm like, yeah, I did. He's like, why don't you come down to my room? And I'm like, now? He's like, yeah, come down to my room right now. I want to let you hear something. And I came downstairs and, you know, he was just like, I know what you're going through. I didn't even say anything to him. He's like, I know what you're going through. Because he was just like me, hip-hop guy all the time. He said, I just want to let you hear something. And he pressed play on the tape deck. And it was from 1998. It was the cross movement's heaven's mentality. And it came on and the guy was like, man, what's this new thing? Looking like a Christian Wu-Tang. My two planes loosely and we tie tight like a shoestring. And I was like, what? <laughs> Who is that? Uh-huh. And he's like, I know. Yeah. He's like, God hears your prayers. So it was like God had spoken to him exactly what I was praying upstairs. Right. That I need you to replace it. And, um, I just started a journey of like, oh my God, God loves me this much that he would, he would allow the culture that has permeated my life to have God honoring representatives to the point to where I can continue to live that way culturally and still love him in, in a righteous way. And, uh, it just changed my life. You know, what's weird about that story is that it plays into both narratives of this sort of culture as a way into Christianity, like you saw this rap group and you said, maybe that's, maybe that is for me. Like maybe I could do that. Yeah. But then the minute you got in, you were like, oh crap, I guess I can't do any of that stuff. <laughs> like yeah. it was in a way, it really was an obstacle that you couldn't, you felt you couldn't embrace that culture exactly in the same way. And, and how, how are we today learning how to take the God honoring aspects of culture? And hold them in, in like high esteem for people who, who need that connection along with their Christian connection. Because we don't just become monocultural and all of a sudden we're just part of a Christian culture. The Christian culture is actually very scary, <laughs> in my opinion, right? All of us bring unique culture with us. And the good thing about Christianity this is what Paul got in so much trouble for. He's like, no, those guys don't have to be circumcised. Yeah. They, they just become Christians. They right. don't have to stop eating pork chop sandwiches. They yeah. just become Christians. They don't have to prove it. Yes. To you. Right. No. Yeah. It is, it is God, it's Christ's redeeming work on the cross that invites them into this family, not them putting down things that you don't like. So you listen to the cross movement then. Who do you listen to now? Man. So now I am more of a fan of hip hop that speaks to the issues of society. So cross movement was more of like a really theological, like, you know, doctrine heavy group. And that was great for me as a, like a new Christian. It was right. like, man, I learned far more about like the faith from listening to Cross Movement than I did going to Bible studies, to be honest with you, because that was my heart music. But now, um, more people like, um, Propaganda, Show Baraka. I'll probably say Lecrae has moved into that level now and, um, Andy Minio, people that, people that speak to kind of like the realities of, of what's going on. A lot of local artists here in Chicago, man, that people don't really Any know. Any quote, of yet. secular artists that oh, you Oh, sure, to? man. I'm like, Kendrick is a, I'm a super Kendrick Lamar fan. Yeah. Um, I'm a really a nineties, like, I like live in the nineties because I feel like that was the best hip hop era. So I'm still a very much a Tribe Called Quest fan and, um, Nas, um, his documentary 
documentary they just released on him. It's so weird how you how we we have feel, have to abandon these things when we first and I think it's natural. I think it's like a natural I think it's a thing we have to do, especially if we worship it. That's right. You know That's what I mean? That's right. I had to let it go it for a second. Yep. We cast it off and then we slowly like come back. We take the stuff we can handle and we go a little further. And and that's so true. I mean, I think we do that in, in lots of areas of our lives. But for me, that was like the perfect example of like the milk to meat conversation that you see in scripture. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's like, totally. okay, I was a baby and I could not take any of that stuff right at that moment. Kendrick Lamar is meat straight up. He's hands down the most meaty MC out right now. Yeah. So how do you deal with that with people probably in your community who aren't ready for meat? Mm. The truth is, is that you can always meet people where they are, right? You can always meet people where they are. I can always find, you know, put it this way, right? You can always find a chief key form, right? Somebody who's not really saying anything, but can get their attention so that you can give them what they need to hear. So a Kendrick would be like, if you're woke and ready, this is what's really going on, (laughs) right? Chief Keith was like, I need to get your attention. I know you like this beat. He's not really saying anything, but hey. Once I get your attention, you know, now let's talk. People in my community who are not ready for me, I don't have to engage them in that way. I engage them right where they are on a relationship level. Like I spend a lot of my day playing dominoes and cards on the porch with guys until they trust me. Why is anybody going to listen to anything I have to say until they trust me? Right. Especially millennials. Oh my goodness. Trust is everything. You get their trust and it's deeper than anything you know or you can provide. It's just that, okay. You really are who you say you are. And you do that just by spending time with them? Spending time and intentionally. So another thing I do is I intentionally look different. So you haven't caught me in those. I just chopped off my dreadlocks about a year ago. They were down my back. I had them for 10 years. And uh so it was very weird for them that like I passed through like a straight stained glass steeple, like real red brick steeple church. And when people come in, they're like, well, who's the pastor here? You know? And I come out and they're like, that guy's a pastor? But like ladies in like hats and dresses and like, that guy's a pastor? Like the, the jeans, gym shoes and dreadlocks guy? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, he's a pastor. Or in my community, it's very popular for pastors to have like fancy cars with nice suits and cufflinks and all that stuff. So I drive a 2005 minivan and people, you know, you know, I remember I was, uh, walking down the block just meeting some guys that were rolling dice on the block. And I told them, Hey, what's up, man? Introduce myself. And I was like, Yeah, I'm the pastor of the church down there. They was like, Are you the pastor? Mm-hmm. All right. That's what's up. They're like, All right. He was like, What kind of car you drive? <laughs> Straight up. Like, just asked. And I was like, 2005 Honda Odyssey. He was like, Oh, what? <laughs> I was like, Yeah, drive a minivan, man. Got two kids. You know, he was like, What? He's like, Where you live? I was like, 55th Honorary. He like, Down the street? I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> What? Really? Like I was throwing off his whole paradigm about the African-American pastor and that he had created that movies and cinema have made that they want to build big churches and have lots of money and, and you know, whatever it takes. Is that primarily from movies and cinema? And reality, too. A little like, bit of reality. a little bit of reality. I always say that you'll always find, I think comedians are the most truth-telling people in society. They just learn how to laugh at themselves, right? And so, um, yeah, if you really want to know what society really thinks of you, just how do they portray you in a movie? So I live intentionally to break that, right? The way I dress, the things I say, uh, where I live, uh, how I spend my money, you know, everything. Because, you know, I don't take a salary from my church right now, right? It's a, we're in a struggling neighborhood. Yeah. So how would it look for me yeah. to be asking people who are barely paying their bills to pay mine? Yeah. 
not a good look. Right. So I go to work every day. Yeah. Right. You just pulled a Apostle Paul. Essentially. Hey, Tim making. I just yeah. don't get breaks. Yeah. I got to work all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he was smart enough not to get married and have kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't mean that, that, baby. I didn't mean that, baby. I didn't mean that. <laughs> um, was there. So, OK. So was there a moment after you became a Christian where you had this realization of your calling? You were called to, to transformation, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. What's that moment like? Actually, a single event. Okay. Which is pretty amazing. So I became the pastor of Canaan in 2006. Mm-hmm. And if I was to describe the way I became the pastor, basically I was working with young people, had got my master's degree in education and was uh, really into working with the young people at, at the church. I only went back there because my mom was going to the church. And um, in hip hop, right? Young guy, really in love with the Lord. Hey, you should be working with the young people from this neighborhood. Yeah, it's like yeah. common sense, right? Yeah. So we started off with a few handful of youth. And by the time three years had gone past of doing it, I had about 50 or 60 kids coming every week, which was pretty good. Our church wasn't even that big. We had like 120 people. So um, it's pretty obvious when you got that many kids. So the pastor comes to me and says, hey, you ever thought about pastoring? And I laughed at him and said, absolutely not. <laughs> like my job here is to work with these kids, go teach school, and I'm good with that. Don't try to add anything. Are you trying to bail? What's up? And so he looks at me and says, well, just think about it. Comes back to me a couple months later and says, hey, did you think about what it said? And I said, I have not because I'm not pastoring and that's not my call. And he says, oh, I wish you would have because I've accepted a pastor at another church and I'm going to be leaving next week. And I go, oh, that's good to know. Why are you telling me? He says, because I want you to be the pastor. I said, okay, cool. Well, I'm not doing that. He says, well, no, take a week. Think about it. Talk to your wife. Next week, we'll come back and tell the church that I'm leaving. And we can either say you're going to be the next pastor or that the doors are closing. They need to find a new church. No pressure. So a week goes past and... uh I don't want to do it. I talk to my wife and I'm expecting her to give me the whole, he's crazy. You're not ready to be a pastor. That's crazy. And she looks and says, uh, you really should do it. I mean, all these kids in the church are coming because of their relationship with you. Their parents don't come to the church. They're coming because you've shown them love. How would they feel thinking you would abandon them because you don't want to do this? I hate when she's right. So I ended up accepting it. But I was thinking, ah, I'll just be a, you know, interim pastor until they find a real one. So that Sunday he comes and announces to the church, Hey everyone, this is my last Sunday. Uh, I know it's a shock to you, but don't worry. Jonathan's going to be your new pastor. Love him. Take care of him the way you've taken care of me. Everything will be great. I promise. And he walks out the door, already has a U-Haul truck packed and just goes off to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there like, what just happened? This guy really just like left me standing in front of the church with, no experience. So I always tell people, man, like some people get called to the pastorate. I actually got forced, right? That was no call. Just you're going to do this. But less than uh, six weeks later, this was the third Sunday in March, which is actually coming up. So I'll be celebrating 10 years of that happening. Nice. Mother's Day morning. I got up. um, I was trying to prove to my congregation that I could actually do this pastor thing. So, you know, to be a black pastor on Mother's Day is really big. Black churches, you have three Sundays where it's going to be packed. We call them CME members. Christian, Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter. Those are three Sundays it's going to be packed. Yeah. So Mother's Day is a pretty big deal. I'm preparing. I'm going to have my suit on, you know, pull my dreadlocks back so I don't want people to see him. I'm trying to look like a real preacher here. <laughs> and I practice black preacher hooping, you know, and uh, God said. <laughs> I was ready. I stood in front you of the practiced, mirror. You practiced I that. practiced it because I was going to prove to them that I could do this. Uh-huh. And so I got up to preach and right as I was about to preach uh, one of the young men that was in my youth group was in the back of the church and um, one of his friends asked him to come outside I saw that not a big deal so I let him walk on out and I stepped back up to preach again right as I was about to tell everyone to turn to the book of whatever I look out the front door and 10 or 15 guys jump up on the steps and just start beating him down right on the front steps of the church 
Mother's Day morning, people in hats, suits, dresses, skirts, ties, right? I'm looking, I'm pointing. Everybody turns around, looks at the back of the church. All the men in the church jump up and run to the back, and a full-out melee starts on the front steps between the church and the, and the guys on the block. Oh I gosh. mean, WWE beating <laughs> each other down. My chairman of the deacons is an off-duty police officer. He pulls out his badge, says, everybody, freeze, stop this. They don't care. They punch him in the face, knock him down. Like, they're not even listening. This is a brawl. Wow. So he gets up off the ground, looking disgusted. He pulls his gun out, shoots in the air twice. Bow, bow. Everybody takes off running across the boulevard. All my guys are running, trying to see what just happened. They run back in the church. Police come. Ambulances come. News media comes. Everybody comes. I've been pastor for about four weeks. Mm -hmm. I lock the doors, send my police officer deacon out and say, you talk to the police because you know what to do. Send my wife outside and say, tell the news. Nothing happened. Think We'll take a statement. Everything's fine. I go back inside and I realize, wait a minute, I'm the pastor of the church. Everybody's in there crying, upset. Clothes all ripped up, bloody mouths and noses. I mean, it's bad. I go up to the pulpit and I realize something's got to change. How is that possibly okay? While we're in here pretending that this is a sacred place with our hats and our suits and our dresses and our ties. What are we talking about? Getting people saved? Are we, are we talking about being successful? I said, dang it, we're not even going to survive over here unless something changes. And it was at that moment that I said, you know what, Jonathan, if we don't get ourselves out of these four walls and really understand what's going on in our neighborhood, this place will only be sacred to us. And we can treat it like the ark if we want. But God proved that when it rains in Inglewood, it rains on us, too. And so from that moment on, I just searched, like, what does it mean to really love your neighborhood? And what does it mean to really be a church that cares about your community? Because if we don't do that, we might as well pack it up. Mm hmm. And from that moment on, I went on searches just looking for churches that love their neighbors or churches that love their community and found the Christian Community Development Association. And everything that I was thinking, they had language for. Yeah. They had people who had been doing it for decades. And it was like another answer prayer. I felt just like when I was in my dorm room mm -hmm. asking God to fill the gap. Then once again, he heard my prayer long before I ever prayed it. Yeah. So it's been from that that exact moment, I tell people all the time when I go on travel that if we don't, if our churches don't go and become a part of their community, God may ask the community to come and get you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a living witness that what you don't want is God to have to force you to do everything. I had to force to be a pastor, forced to come back to Chicago, forced to realize that the community matters when really it was always in the scripture all along. Yeah, that's good. So you said you are trying to get people uh, to come back to their communities. I, is that is that against the grain? Most people want to leave. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Success in our neighborhood is to leave. Um, my first house when I moved back to Inglewood was two blocks away from Derrick Rose's house. I took my kids to Murray Park where he played all the time. They were riding the slide. He was playing basketball, right? But there was no doubt in my mind that when he got his contract, he wasn't staying there. Mm. This is. It's not what you do. This is not a neighborhood to live in when you're successful. It's one to leave. And no one thinks you're successful until you do. What I'm trying to do is ask, who told us that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and why does that have to be true? Yeah. Why can't this be a, a destination place for successful people? Why can't this be a place where people who are loving their children and, and taking care and going to work every day and pastors and doctors and lawyers and athletes and desire to live because the only way it becomes that is when those kind of people are present but if we all leave so sure that's a journey 
Sure. But a journey begins with what? One step. And so uh, just trying to get people to be a part of that initial step. And that's challenging. Nobody wants to be a first buyer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you said you, uh, you've been doing this for 10 years yep. almost. Yeah. Um, in that amount of time, you had to have a moment where you doubted that calling. Just one? Well, let's talk about one. What's one that sticks out to you in particular? Uh, or, or just a general. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thing. Yeah, no, no. Um, I've had a myriad of moments. I tell me and my wife will tell you quickly that we quit every day. <laughs> Being bottom line. But, um, you know, some of the frustrating things are when you're working with people or especially young people, like they're part of your after school programs. You, you, you taking them to school when they, when, when, you know, when they know, when you know they wouldn't normally go, you, you pouring into their lives, you meeting with their parents, you, you spend, I mean, you're taking time from your own family to pour into these and, you know that only one decision can destroy all of that. And uh, there's so many young people who, rather than me going to their graduation, I'm presiding over their funerals. And um, those are moments of extreme discouragement when you have to bury a kid who you know had so much potential. And I've had my fair share of those. And, and those are the moments where you really look up to God and you go, really? But that's why every small victory, you relish in it. You know, I'll never forget Pastor Wayne Gordon, who's a pastor of Lawndale Community Church, which is our sister church. That's one of the first churches I saw ever doing this community transformation stuff. I was talking to his wife and she was saying, you know, one of the one of the best things about living in Lawndale is how much we party. And I was like, why would you say that? She was like, well, there's so much hard stuff that happens on a daily basis that when good things happen. We party like it might not ever happen again. And <laughs> yeah. she was like, so graduations, we like party the whole weekend. Like when 4th of July barbecues last for hours. Yeah. And, and she was just like, and I just love to party because those are the times when I remember that God is present and he's still faithful. Uh-huh. And I told her, you know, I totally agree with that. That's why whenever I get to party, whenever we get to celebrate, it's almost graduation and prom time. I tell you, we're going to celebrate because you have to juxtapose those with those times of extreme grief. And yeah. pain. Yeah. Um, so it gets difficult. What do you tell your church in those times of grief? Like, what's the theology for that? I believe in the theology of suffering. Uh-huh. Um, I believe that our God has modeled that he doesn't get to escape suffering himself. Um, and since he's a God who not only suffered for us, but suffered with us and because of us, then we should expect the same. We should expect to suffer for one another to suffer with one another and suffer because of one another. And um, Paul reminds us that even in our suffering, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so if I get excited about the little celebrations we have down here, then I got to realize that my suffering that I have now only helps me to understand how great the celebration will be when we enter into the new Jerusalem. And we get to spend eternity with our Savior. So that theology of suffering matters. Suffering is important to Christianity. We don't get to avoid it. It's a part of it. Right. Persecution is who we are. Right. Uh, I preached a sermon two Sundays ago that said, are you, are you willing to be arrested? Right? Right before like, oh, I don't want to date it, before that rally about that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the next Sunday, my church was like, wow, how did you know that was going to happen? I was like, I didn't. But that's a question we should be asking ourselves all the time because- Basically, I said, if, and I talked about this on the other podcast, uh, if there's an action that's happening because you're a Christian, then there should be an equal and opposite reaction. 
And if we can live comfortably without any reaction, it's only because there's no action on our end. So suffering is expected if we're actually living out kingdom values. Yeah. And that's the theology we have, that we have to take the suffering that comes with the action because the enemy's not going to sit back and be like, oh, you're acting? Oh, go ahead. No, he's going to give an equal and opposite reaction, which results in loss. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were talking to yourself uh, from the past, your younger self, oh man, what advice would you give him? Ooh, wow. What a great question. If I was talking to the young Jay, uh, first of all, I would probably tell him that who he is is exactly who God wanted him to be. That as uniquely created as you are with your big backpack on, your shell toe Adidas and your spray paint cans in the backpack, that you are created uniquely in the image of God and given dominion. And God wants to use you to see the world change. Um, because those are not the words that young men from our community hear. We hear just make it by any means necessary. Take whatever people give you, right? When you fill out a job application, put your open all seven days a week, 24 hours a day, because you just take whatever scraps fall from the table. Uh, but I'd want to tell that young man that no, you're a king created in the image of God and that God has uniquely created you with passion and with gifts. And that while you're trying to map out your way, if you would just let God lead, life would look a lot different. I don't know how he'd take it. Well, if you came to him, I think he'd listen to him. I think he'd have to listen to himself in the future. It's not an option. I think he'd be scared. (laughs) Well, Pastor Jay, thank you very much for doing this. It's really good. It's been great. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to The Calling. You can follow Jonathan Brooks on Twitter at Pasta J. That's pasta with an H followed by a J. That's how uh, Jonathan said to remember it or to figure it out. Please remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. And if you like this podcast and you also like reading words instead of just hearing them, you should check out Christianity Today's new special section. It's called The Local Church. You can follow the local church on Twitter. That's CT Local Church. Every day we post a new little note thing. And every month we post a new dispatch that's like a series of longer pieces. I think you'll like it. Check it out. Uh, Let me know what you think about this podcast. You can tweet at me. I'm the Richard Clark. That's at the Richard Clark. T-H-E Richard Clark. Thanks. And I'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.